Welcome to Healing Lives with Corey Gilbert, a podcast sponsored by the Healing Lives Center. Discover how to love and lead your family well and biblically. God created sex, marriage, and the family for our stewardship, growth, and benefit. My heart and passion is to teach, train, educate, and disciple Christians that want strong marriages and families. The Healing Life Center has been serving Christians since the year 2000. Its mission is to be a center for sex, trauma, and marriage education and transformation, where we offer counseling, coaching, courses, and speaking services to you, your church, or ministry. Check us out at HealingLives.com. Hello, hello. We're going through Lost in Transnation, a child psychiatrist guide out of the madness, and this is chapter 11, Euphemisms. And that's a really important word because that's what's going on in our language with what's going with what's happening in the uh, trans movement. So here are some really key par- parts that are going to help you um, in terms of battling and combating some of the language that's being talked about. So Beverly, actually from Oregon, <coughs> emailed Dr. Dr. Grossman, remind, remind the name, um, urgent need help with ROGD daughter. So rapid onset gender dysphoria daughter. Please answer ASAP. She discovered in her 15-year-old's bedroom a breast binder, um, and her best friend, her daughter's best friend, main influence was a 16-year-old Mia uh, who had just had top surgery as part of her own male identification process. So Beverly is beside herself. Do doctors really do that? She asked incredulously. They sure do, I replied. So as Dr. Grossman's writing this, there are 45,375 girls seeking donations on GoFundMe to pay for what gender surgeons call a masculinized chest. Top surgery is a euphemism, of course. What they're talking about is breast amputation, a bilateral mastectomy. Why the vague, bland language? To normalize this atrocity. Nothing to see here, folks. Just an eighth grader having her healthy breast sliced off. Just top surgery. Mind you, these are the same people who insist that five-year-olds use anatomically accurate terms, not childish nicknames, for their genitals. They soberly instruct us to teach the words scrotum and vulva to kindergartners, but the imprecise, trivial-sounding top surgery, that language is fine. And don't tell me these operations are only done on adults. And a study of 68 patients who underwent the procedure at Children's Hospital LA, almost half were girls between 13 and 17. And that was way back in 2016. A letter from plastic surgeons at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine published in the journal JAMBA Pediatrics reported between 2016 and 2019, the annual number of gender-affirming chest surgeries increased by 389% likely a significant underestimate because it included only surgeries performed in hospitals. Many of these procedures take place outside of hospitals in surgery centers owned by plastic surgeons. The letter documented that 77% of patients used private insurance or were self-pay and the average cost was $30,000. Kaiser Permanente Oakland performed 70 top surgeries in 2019 on teenagers ages 13 to 18, up from five in 2013. I can't honestly think of another field where the volume has exploded like that, said Dr. Karen Yoku, a retired plastic surgeon at the hospital. Why do girls and young women 
dream of going under the knife and waking up with flat chest and sometimes to save a few bucks without nipples. They have mental health problems, a traumatic past, family issues, or maybe just intense teenage angst and erroneously believe my colleagues who claim removing body parts will bring them relief. Wow. As an intern in pediatrics, when a patient needed a medical procedure, I was required to obtain informed consent from the parents or guardians. I was obligated to explain accurately and comprehensively the risks, both immediate and long-term, of this procedure. I wonder, when surgeons perform mastectomies on minors like Mia, how accurate and comprehensive are the consents? Even if valid arguments exist for surgical solutions to emotional distress, the outcomes of mastectomies for Mia and the 45,000 girls on the GoFundMe are highly uncertain. Yes, there exist individuals who, decades after breast removal for gender distress, claim to have no regret. I believe them. But first of all, they underwent surgery in adulthood. Decades ago, top surgery was not performed on minors. Second, as you will see, the best studies we have indicate that overall, even the women having surgery as adults are not doing well. Mia and many of the GoFundMe girls are minors, an unstudied group. We have no long-term data whatsoever on them. We have no idea how they're going to fare even five years after surgery, let alone 20. 0% regret rate? Question. Proponents of gender-affirming care for minors, such as the Admiral at HHS, call the treatments crucial and medically necessary, but there is no evidence to support those claims. Mia's mother was almost certainly told that mastectomies for minors with gender dysphoria are evidence-based treatment supported by well-documented standards of care. Again, that is not the case. When proponents say they have evidence of benefit, to what do they refer? They're citing studies that are, to put it bluntly, poor. They have a small number of subjects, no control groups, a self-selection bias, high dropout rates, and short follow-ups. One example is the study mentioned above from the Pediatric Gender Clinic at Children's Hospital LA, claiming only one patient experienced occasional feelings of regret. Johanna Olson Kennedy, an adolescent medicine specialist at Children's Hospital LA and leader in pediatric gender trans transitioning, told the New York Times, quote, there's very few things in the world that have a 0% regret rate and ch chest surgery clinically, I've experienced that. Example, she has seen zero regret following mastectomies. The doctor didn't seem concerned that 30% of patients could not be contacted or declined to participate. Why would a patient fail to return to a clinic? There are lots of possibilities. Maybe she moved. Maybe she dislikes the doctor. Maybe she's disappointed with the results but wants to avoid an unpleasant conversation. Maybe she's furious with the doctor and staff and never wants to see them again. Maybe she's in a psychiatric hospital or in prison. Maybe she's dead. Dr. Olson Kennedy ignores what we hear from those who describe their regret. It appears to take on an average eight or more years to develop and admit this regret. Most patients in Dr. Olson Kennedy's study were surveyed less than two years after their surgeries. Zero percent regret rate? 
I think you're speaking too soon, Dr. Olson Kennedy. I think you're misleading girls and their parents. I think you are leading them toward harm. There's only one high-quality, long-term study following gender surgeries, and it's from Sweden, where a database exists that includes each instance of medical and mental health care provided from birth to death to each of the almost 14 million people in its medical system. It also includes all suicides. Use of that database removes confounding variables that plague other methods of collecting information. The Swedish database provides more reliable answers to questions that everyone, especially the gender-affirming medical establishment in our country, should be asking, such as, what is the long-term relative risk of suicide in women who have been given testosterone and surgery when compared to women of the same age demographic? The Swedish research published in 2011 is not perfect, but it's the best we have. It found that 10 years after sex reassignment, women living as men had increased mortality from many causes, especially suicide. They were 40 times more likely to die from suicide than women in the general population matched for, for age and other demographics. The authors concluded, surgery and hormonal therapy is apparently not sufficient to remedy the high rates of mental illness and mortality found among transsexual persons. Our findings suggest that sex reassignment, although alleviating gender dysphoria, may not suffice as treatment for transsexualism. Another Swedish study also failed to demonstrate improved mental health following surgery, but this is noteworthy. The authors claimed the opposite. An example of how GAC, Gender Affirming Care, proponents misrepresent their findings. An October 2019 publication concluded that while gender-affirming hormones did not lead to improved mental health, gender-affirming uh, surgeries, is that right? yeah, surgeries like mastectomies did. If correct, that would have a been a significant finding. They measured three parameters following surgery in men and women. One, visits for anxiety or mood disorder. Two, prescriptions for antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication and three, hospitalizations following suicide attempts. They found that, quote, compared with the general population, individuals with a gender incongruence diagnosis were about six times as likely to have had a mood and anxiety disorder healthcare visit, more than three times as likely to have received prescriptions for antidepressants and axiolytics, and more than six times as likely to have been hospitalized after a suicide attempt. Obviously, that doesn't sound good, but they also found that the numbers decreased this time. Fewer appointments, prescriptions, and hospitalizations following suicide attempts. They concluded that the decrease lends support to provide gender-affirming surgeries to transgender individuals to seek them. But the study had severe shortcomings. No numbers on psychiatric hospitalizations for reasons other than suicide attempts. No control subjects. A limited one-year time frame retrospective design, and major loss to follow-up. The most conspicuous and concerning of the shortcomings was the omission of suicides. You read that right. The author's goal was to examine mental health outcomes. The study was titled Reduction in Mental Health Treatment Utilization Among Transgender Individuals After Gender-Affirming Surgeries, but they excluded suicides. With the information accessible in the Swedish database, Leaving out suicide data was glaring. 
The month after its publication, I joined pediatric endocrinologist Michael Laidlaw, family medicine physician Andre Van Moll, and Professor Paul McHugh of John Hopkins in a letter to the American Journal of, of Psychiatry. We submitted that the study lacked the evidence to support its conclusions supporting gender affirmation surgery. It took 10 months for the study authors and AJP to publicly respond to our criticism. Finally, in August of 2020, the editor-in-chief reported the receipt of six letters in addition to ours questioning the study's statistical analysis conclusions. AJP sent the study and letters to a statistical reviewer and based on the reviewer's findings, it issued a major correction. There was, after all, no advantage to surgery for gender dysphoria regarding appointments for mood and anxiety, prescription for antidepressants and anxiolytics, and hospitalizations following suicide attempts. So there you have it. A study showing no long-term benefit from surgery was touted as providing evidence of long-term benefit from surgery. You know the rest. The utterly unsubstantiated conclusion had already been publicized near and far. So the United Press said, gender reassignment surgery brings mental health benefits, study shows. Wrong. ABC News, transgender surgery linked with better long-term mental health study shows. Wrong. NBC News, sex reassignment surgery yields long-term mental health benefits. Also incorrect. The LGBT site out.com study Trans people with access to surgery have be better mental health. Incorrect. Yale University. Mental health outcomes improve transgender individuals after surgery. Incorrect. American Psychiatric Association. Study finds long-term mental health benefits to gender-affirming surgery for transgender individuals. Incorrect. WebMD, the popular news site for physicians. Gender reassignment surgery benefits mental health. Incorrect. Do you understand? This is another John Money scenario. Faulty research, unsubstantiated conclusions, aggressive publicity, white acceptance, and the gender affirmation lobby declares the science is settled. It's the same old story. How many heard this truth about David Reamer in 1999? How many heard in 2020, almost a year after publication, that the surgery helps mental health conclusion had been corrected, retracted? The answer is very few. And by that time, the unsubstantiated conclusions are baked into the system and into the minds and hearts of unsuspecting doctors, educators, politicians, parents, nearly everyone. The only accurate conclusion to draw, and this is the conclusion to reach by authorities uh, in a growing number of countries, is that mastectomies on minors such as Mia are experimental. There is no high quality evidence that they benefit in the long run, but there is evidence of harm. Sweden, Norway, Finland, and Britain all say girls like Mia need in-depth in -depth psychotherapy, not a surgeon's scalpel. But in the U.S., it's full steam ahead. For Mia's mom, consent to be valid, for mom's consent to be valid, those facts needed to be acknowledged. Bottom line, the surgeon had an obligation to explain to Mia's mother that performing a mastectomy on her daughter is highly controversial. Next section. I do not have a minimum age in my practice. Wow, scary. If the girls on the GoFundMe manage um, to reach their goals, the funds may end up in the coffers of um, Sibid Gallagher, a Miami surgeon 
whose patients find her on TikTok. Gallagher's unique approach to marketing was covered in a New York Times article. Until recently, she posted bubbly videos of gleeful clients recovering from what she called Titus Deletus. On one video, she brags, I have yeeted one hundreds of unwanted teats. On another, she laments, just realized I only get to yeet four teats next week. Wow, sick. Gallagher, who admits to removing the breasts of girls as young as 14, seems to have pivoted away from the, her odious ads about yeeting teats, perhaps due to a 2022 complaint filed by with the Federal Trade Commission for alleging, allegedly engaging in aggressive and deceptive marketing to minors. On the other hand, it could be a result of a testament posted on multiple platforms warning graphic medical images by one of Gallagher's patients who claims she nearly died before a second surgeon removed over half a foot of dead rotting tissue from the incision site on her chest. Not to be deterred, Gallagher has a new persona. She is now the vagisician MD on social media, peddling castration and vaginoplasties to her 250,000 followers. Dr. Giancarlo McEvenu at Toronto's McLean Clinic is another popular surgeon. His Instagram shows him in surgical scrubs and a Santa hat. Caption, for all you good boys, Dr. McEvenu is not bringing gifts. He's taking them away. Smiley emojis. In each hand is a pale labeled breast tissue. The doctor is masked, but his eyes are beaming. Another choice would be Dr. Scott Moser in San Francisco, who self-describes as super committed to gender surgery. His quote, At the Gender Confirmation Center, we try to live with our values 30 to 40 years in the future. That puts us in the mindset of extreme affirmation, because affirming at that time is a foregone conclusion. This is a time in the future, there, yeah, this is a time in the future when gender is just a thing, nobody makes a big deal out of it. I do not have a minimum age in my practice. With parental consent, someone can, could even do a consult with me at the age of 10, 11, or 12. I'm often asked how so many people can embrace gender madness. What's behind it? They don't mean the well-meaning people who blindly trust authority, but the brains and money behind the movement. Dr. Moser's statement demonstrates two motives. First is a vision of radical social reform. An ardent adherent of the Articles of Faith, he envisions a society in which nobody makes a big deal out of the disfigurement and sterilization of children. He's so certain of that ideal, it cannot come too soon. The other factor, of course, is money. Moser claims to have performed 2,000 mastectomies. Moser was a WPATH SOCA committee member for the chapters on surgery on adolescents. Is that not a conflict of interest? With the guidelines removing all age restrictions for chest masculinization, his business must be booming. Do surgeons like Gallagher and McEvenu and Moser get to know patients like Mia before cutting them open? Are they curious to learn why a young girl loathes herself to the degree that she goes under the knife? Do they inquire about her history of autism or how peers shamed her 
in elementary school when she began to develop? How about the sexual assault by her cousin? Anxiety and depression are highly prevalent in girls and women seeking top surgery. Laura Becker, a vocal detransitioner, who described, uh, describes uh, with brilliant insight the role played by her autism and complex PTSD in adopting a transgender identity, was suicidal on the day of her double mastectomy and told her surgeon as much. But proponents of the gender-affirming care argue that delving into transgender identifying women's mental health is gatekeeping, an abomination, according to the Articles of Faith. Removing her breasts is a human right, they say, to align her body with her identity. WPATH SOC8 encourages a mental health evaluation but doesn't, have, doesn't make it mandatory. The Crusaders want the troubled girls in the driver's seat. The joy of binding. Girls such as Mia typically get mastectomies following years of binding. A binder is a thick spandex and nylon undergarment whose purpose is to flatten breasts. The research about these devices is scant, but in one large hospital cl gender clinic, almost 95% of girls wore them. Children's Hospital LA tells parents, a flat chest can affirm an individual's identity and allow them and their gender identity to be correctly perceived in public. Binding can provide a new level of confidence, energy, comfort, and joy that positively enhances their self-esteem and identity. Joy? More on that later. You and I know that every girl feels awkward or worse with her breast development and menstruation, especially if she's earlier than her peers. We need to normalize those feelings and provide reassurance. The embarrassment and self-consciousness, the unwanted attention, all girls feel the same way to, to varying degrees. But your daughter is led to believe if she feels any discomfort whatsoever with her developing body, she may be gender nonconforming, gender variant, or trans. She should try a binder and see if she likes the results. What if your daughter needs binder shopping advice? As one undercover mom discovered, she can hop on the chat room or anonymous online forum Trevor Space for LGBT youth hosted by the well-funded and influential Trevor Project. The Trevor Project, I remind you, is with AAP refers your child on its healthychildren.org site powered by pediatrics, uh, powered by, sorry, pediatricians, trusted by parents from the American Academy of Pediatrics. When your child signs on to Trevor Project, just as the Gleason webpage, he's reminded of the quick exit feature. Press the escape button three times to quickly leave your site in case you show up unexpectedly. I've been looking for a binder, one girl asked, but I have no clue where to get one. Does anyone know where I can get a reliable binder? An adult user replied with a list of brands, adding, I really recommend TransTape. Another adult wrote, if it's your first time, I started with Tomboy X compression tops. What if your daughter can't afford a binder? Point of Pride, a transgender nonprofit based in Eugene, Oregon, ships binders free to girls 13 and over. Your daughter is reassured their packaging is discreet. What if your daughter doesn't want, to, want you to know? Like this girl in a Trevor Project chat. She said, I know the way people usually do this is by ordering it to a friend's house but I don't have anyone to do that with. I have money and know where I want to get it from and all that. I just need a means of getting it. 
Another user suggested she have the binder sent to a post office where she could pick it up without her parents' knowledge. Maybe she could just get one at school. One 13-year-old in Maine was given one by her school social worker who encouraged her to keep it a secret. As you might expect, smashing your breasts for 8 to 10 hours a day has consequences. Some problems begin soon while others emerge years later. One study of nearly 1,300 girls found 89% experienced at least one negative effect, such as back pain, overheating, chest pain, and shortness of breath. Nearly 40% experienced severe pain, and in 20% the binder limited their daily activities. Doesn't sound like joy to me. Chloe. Ah, Chloe. Chloe and permanent damage. Chloe Cole had mastectomies at age 15 and described her experience with binding on Jordan Peterson's podcast. It's a good podcast. When I watched, I didn't see joy. I saw trauma and grief. I saw Dr. Peterson choke up. I don't know how any decent person could watch and listen to Chloe and not feel sorrow for her and rage at those responsible for her misery. I'm grateful to Chloe for being as open as she was because she taught me so something. For some girls, perhaps for your daughter, binding can act like a gateway drug. It introduces them to what appears to be a temporary and harmless flattening of their curves, but leads to their permanent disfigurement with or without amputation. Chloe Cole on Dr. Jordan Peterson's podcast said this, I was two or three years on testosterone and I'd been binding for roughly the same amount of time. My breasts had lost their shape they didn't look like they used to before. They didn't really have, you know, they didn't, they didn't, to me, it just looked strange. And I actually started developing more insecurities with my body as I went through my transition, you know. Like I had, like, these masculine features pop up. But it was also on a female body, and there was, like, an incongruence between different features on my body, and especially my breasts. Like it was this masculine looking body with quite a bit of muscle and yet these things were there and they weren't really in the best shape and it became a source of insecurity for me. And you know, I thought that even if I wanted to, my chest would never be the same. We must listen closely to Chloe. She is telling us two to three years of binding made her breasts look strange. Although she was binding and taking testosterone to supposedly align her body with her identity and get relief from her dysphoria, her dysphoria increased, especially about her mishappened breasts. Even if she wanted to return to living as a girl, she realized they would never look the same. She continued, And so there was not really any point to keeping it and keeping it, i.e. her chest and her breasts. And before I went under... Before I went under the knife, they did tell me that I was going to lose my ability to breastfeed, but it was like, I'm going to be a man, and men don't do that. I also wasn't really thinking all about being a parent at the time, because, you know, I was a kid. How could anyone read this and not weep? Yes, Chloe, you were just a kid. The common practice of breast binding severely impacts the quality of breast skin, reported a group of plastic surgeons from Belgium. 
They noted decreased skin elasticity, resulting in ptosis, or sagging of breasts, typically seen in older women. Chloe was 15 when her breasts were removed. You want to save your daughter from this nightmare. Do not permit her to bind. It's dangerous and can have permanent consequences. If you discover she has one, tell her you have researched this device and discovered they can harm her. Your job as a parent is to protect her and you do not permit her to harm herself. You will allow a sports bra so long as it fits properly. She needs to hand the binder over just as you would take away razors for cutting. You must confiscate the binder. Next section. I made a brash decision. Countless young women have shared their grief over their lost breasts. They asked doctors, how could you experiment on us? Why didn't you look deeper and help us with our real issues? I wish I could share all their voices. In addition to regret about their mastectomies, many also describe how once on the affirming path to surgery, they were unable to turn back. Like I've said, it's an assembly line. Here's a young woman describing how she silenced her doubts because she'd been on the path to surgery for years. Quote, I began to doubt my transition. It started as an occasional passing thought, but it only grew in frequency. To silence this, I created a mental wall or block to keep me from considering this train of thought any further. It was too painful to consider detransitioning. Besides, I've been waiting for top surgery for years and didn't want to cancel it now. So I went through with it. When I saw my bandaged chest, I could feel that something was off. But it wasn't until I returned for my top surgery reveal days later and I realized I'd made a terrible mistake. The gruesome nature of the scarring dragged my awareness out of my head and back into physical reality. The bruises and swelling were mortifying and my dysphoric focus was shifted from my chest to my white hips. The surgery was supposed to cure my dysphoria. Why did it make me feel worse? Kiara Bell, you read about her in the earlier chapter, identified as a man between the ages of 16 and 20. She had a bilateral mastectomy and then detransitioned. This is what she told the British High Court. Only recently, I have started to think about having children. And if that is ever a possibility, I have to live with the fact that I will not be able to breastfeed my children. I made a brash decision. Trying to find confidence and happiness, now the rest of my life will be negatively affected. In a letter to the Attorney General, seven detransitioners, six of whom regret their mastectomies, wrote, Many of us were young teenagers when we decided on the direction of medical experts to pursue irreversible hormone treatments and surgeries to bring our bodies into closer alignment with what we thought was our true gender identity. Many of us had extensive histories of mental illness. Many of us had experienced significant childhood trauma. But all of us, all of this was ignored because we uttered the word gender. Some of us have chosen to speak out publicly about the harm that gender-affirming care has caused us. But most detransitioners choose to remain silent or anonymous because unlike the joyful and supportive communities that welcome all who transition, no such loving community awaits us. Instead, we are routinely, routinely harassed and browbeaten into silence 
for being an inconvenience to popular narratives around gender. But our growing population is becoming impossible to ignore, and others have started amplifying our suppressed voices by denouncing the uncontrolled medical experts being performed, experiments being performed on children in hospitals in the name of gender-affirming care. But those women are brushed off by the gender medical establishment. Listen to jo Johanna Olson Kennedy from Children's Hospital LA, a rabidly affirming pediatrician who believes there should be no minimum age for a double mastectomy. What if a girl regrets it? Olson Kennedy says, if you want breasts at a later point in their life, you can go and get them. Coming from a medical doctor, who knows well the difference between breast tissue and silicone, silicone, the statement is odious. Will Mia regret her mastectomies? There's no way to know. She's only 16. Her brain is immature and her identity is evolving. In the next decade, she will go through many more changes. And one of them, I hope, will be a reacceptance of her female biology. I doubt Mia's surgeon advised her mother to consider the possibility, but it's real. Mia may follow the same path as Daisy Chadra, a young woman who lived as a man for five years and had her breasts amputated, her word. What she lost is irreplaceable, but Daisy's back at peace with her female biology. In fact, she and her husband have a baby. By the way, Daisy has said that she that just a few years ago, she was 100% certain, 100% sure that she'd be trans forever. Now she wishes, wishes she could nurse. There appears to be thousands like Daisy who regret the medical and surgical interventions they believed would solve their emotional problems. Transgender activists claim they are rare, but reddit.com's detransitioners site alone as of this writing, has 47,300 members. If Mia someday joins their growing ranks, she may experience her flat, scarred chest as a loss. And what if she decides, like Daisy, to have a child? In getting informed consent, the surgeon was obligated to raise the possibility and discuss the consequences of Mia's breast removal, not only to her daughter, but also to her grandchildren. Because in this case, organ removal may have negative consequences for the next generation. Breasts are not disposable sex objects. Girls like Mia, Chloe, and Daisy who bind their breasts and go under the knife are not new to me. I've known about them for years, but I will never get used to the photos girls post. Each time I see one, another one with jagged scars across her chest, I'm sickened. Maybe it's because I'm a mother and grandmother or because I know the science of nursing and maternal child bonding. Perhaps it's related to my bilateral mastectomies for cancer, says Dr. Grossman. These are young girls struggling with their mental health. Many have yet to experience the pleasure their bodies can give them. None can fathom motherhood. Of that I am certain. To rob them of the pleasures and functions their breasts might provide is abhorrent and criminal. Why would a girl consider her breasts only sex objects to be leered at, despicable and disposable? Because of our culture, obviously, but also because of her education. For example, back when Mia was learning her ABCs, she was taught the planet is a delicate ecosystem. She shouldn't take clean air and natural resources for granted, she learned. 
The concept was enforced throughout her curriculum and for over years and over the years. She took it to heart and is now an avid recycler. Her concerns about global warming keep her up at night. Unfortunately, no one ever told her that she is a delicate ecosystem, especially her female physiology, including her breasts. If she's been aware of their wonderful complex function, perhaps she'd have paused before damaging them by binding and losing them by amputation. When she signed on the dotted line, Mia's mother agreed to deprive her daughter and grandchildren of the opportunity to nurse. At the moment, it may have seemed irrelevant. After all, as Chloe thought at the time, I'm a boy, that boys don't nurse. But a few months after her mastectomy, she was in a psychology class and heard about psychologist Harry Harlow's experiment using rhesus monkeys. The experiment showed that the bond between mother and child was much more critical to the development of the child's brain than it had been known. It occurred to me that I'd never be able to breastfeed my baby, she said. She was 16. Julie, 27, also underwent a mastectomy and then detransitioned. I had this intense rage in me over the harm that was done to me, said Julie, who didn't want to be identified out of fear of backlash from activists. She called her treatment a collaborative idiocy, drawing together her parents, therapists, and doctors. It's like a bad word, village. Laura Becker wrote a letter to, honor, uh, to her surgeon, Dr. Clifford King, from the offices of Top Surgery Midwest in Madison, Wisconsin, to inform him she 100% regrets the operation and has detransitioned and is now living as a female with no functioning breasts. Laura writes, she was fresh out of an inpatient psychiatric ward for suicidal ideation when I desperately made my appointment with Dr. King to try and heal my depression through altering my body with surgery. Laura writes, she openly discussed being suicidal with Dr. King during our consultation and feeling suicidal on the day of the actual surgery. And she adds, I was 20, developmentally immature, mentally ill, suicidal, had PTSD, and not in a rational state of consciousness. Yet the mental health system failed to provide its due service. And Dr. King and other cosmetic surgeons hungrily leapt at the opportunity for fresh meat to profit from operating on in this unchecked Wild West market for gender medicine. I submit for mastectomy consent to be informed. Mia and her mother had to be aware of the increasing numbers of trans men who revert to living as women, regret their breast surgery, and grasp the full impact of what was taken from them. And just as kidney donor must understand the organ to be excised, filters the blood, and produces urine, they must learn that breasts provide the best available nourishment to infants, that nursing is central to mother-infant bonding. Mommy is here. In general terms, for informed consent to be valid, the patient, or their guardian, must know the benefits and risks, both short and long term, of the procedure, and must have the mental capacity to make rational decisions. The consent must also be voluntary, free of threat or coercion. Stephen Levine and co-authors have written extensively about the myriad ethical concerns of the informed consent model of care often used for gender-affirming in interventions. In that model, mental health evaluations are not needed, and consent is sometimes obtained following surprisingly brief evaluations. 
They call that model the antithesis of true informed consent. Patients consenting to treatments do not have an accurate understanding of the risks, benefits, and alternatives. Regarding Mia, I focus here on specific elements of informed consent, knowing the long-term risk, especially or specifically the risk that she may wish one day to breastfeed and will have lost that ability. The surgeon is obligated to explain that her breasts provide the best known nourishment for babies and that nursing is central to mother-infant bonding. How might a surgeon accomplish that? Maybe with a series of videos that walk her through the science and allow her to imagine herself as a mother, even if it seems inconceivable to her right now, because people change and she may change. The video could begin with Harlow's experiment mentioned above. It could then describe how she approached birth and Ma Mia's body would create the superfood called colostrum, her baby's first meal. Colostrum is thick and sweet in the perfect temperature, rich in nutrients. It's also a vaccine, laxative, immune booster, and anti-inflammatory agent. When placed on her abdomen following delivery, her newborn would slowly crawl toward her breast and begin to suckle. How would he find his way? With his strong sense of smell, he'd be attracted to the familiar scent of her nipples. Wait, how could he know the odor of his mother's nipples? He'd recognize it from before he was born. It would smell like the amniotic fluid in which he was immersed for months. It would be familiar and calming. It would say, mommy is here. With a few drops on a cotton pad placed by his tiny nose, he'd cry less when separated from her. Think about it. A newborn is jolted into an unfamiliar, harsh reality of bright lights, loud noises, cold, hunger, and pain. Any reminder of the idyllic existence he left behind must be heavenly. We all know the power of scent. When her baby would nurse with her, his nostrils against her nipple, he'd inhale the scent of that perfect world. With nursing, she and her baby would, be, would have function as one unit. Upon seeing, hearing, and even thinking of him, her milk would have come down, causing a feeling of fullness. She'd need to nurse now. Her baby's suckling would relieve the uncomfortable pressure in her breasts and stimulate the release of oxytocin, a powerful hormone that would help her relax and bond with her child. Her baby would get a hefty dose of oxytocin too, both his own and from her milk, and he'd get it while feeding or feeling and hearing her heartbeat, as he did in the womb. It would have been a positive feedback loop, oxytocin surge, milk letdown, nurse, oxytocin surge. Repeat indefinitely until fully satisfied or asleep. If it sounds magical, trust me, it is. No bottle, pacifier, plush toy, bouncer, swing, rocker, sound machine, mobile, light show, or vibrating mat will soothe an unhappy baby like nursing. Her breasts and milk composition would have adapted to her baby's needs. If the baby would have a fever, her breasts would cool down. If his temperature would have dropped, her breasts would warm up. This remarkable process is called thermosynchrony. If the baby got sick, the number of white cells in her milk would rise to fight the infection. Breast milk provides lasting health benefits for both mother and child and is considered the gold standard of pediatrician, by pediatricians and the World Health Organization. Nursing would help her uterus to return to its normal size. 
Breastfeeding, especially at night, would increase levels of prolactin, a hormone that would enhance her milk supply and make her feel relaxed and sleepy. So even if the baby wakes up hungry at night, she can usually rest well. Nursing will suppress her ovulation and menstruation, preventing a new pregnancy and allowing her to focus on her child. And with that video, the video would end. Of course, the miracle, the miracles of mother-child bonding and the many other wonders of her female biology are utterly foreign to Mia. Her sexuality education focused on her right to engage in oral, anal, and vaginal intercourse and to access contraception and abortions without parental consent, to reject her body and identify as a boy. Pregnancy? Nursing? You've got to be kidding. And that's what got us here to over 45,000 girls on GoFundMe. Instead of inspiring awe for their biology, they were indoctrinated to flee it. How many will end up regretting their choices like Chloe and Daisy? Maybe nursing mothers should come speak to girls, moms such as these who told me, quote, nursing is our special quiet time together. I know I must stop everything and meet his needs. Only I can do this. Some moms will prop up a bottle, leave the baby, and go do something else. That's so sad. I look at how he has grown, his chubby, delicious arms and cheeks, and I know all that came from me. I was recovering from a difficult birth, yet every time I put my baby to my breast to nourish her brain and body with my gift of liquid love, the pain, the new mom anxiety, the exhaustion all evaporated. As my child nurses, our breath and heartbeats align. We enter a place of deep serenity beyond the touch of time. And some of you are rolling your eyes, but consider what your daughter learns in school right now. At five, that she may have a boy's brain. At nine, to enjoy drag shows. At 11, the wonders of 10 years on testosterone. And in some high schools, your daughters still have access to contraception, including the day after pill and STD testing right down the hall for free without your knowledge. Parents concerned that girls learning about nursing constitutes an offensive microaggression can opt their daughter out. And no, boys who identify as girls are not invited. Sorry, Jazz, and all trans women out there. You may have curves and glittery makeup, but you'll never know those natural female wonders. What's missing from girls' lives is a sense of awe for their biology. Sure, the earth is a delicate ecosystem and treasure to be cared for and respected, but so are they. From where do they get the, that message? Certainly not at school, not in sex ed, or anywhere else. It's in your hands. You must reach your girls before the sex ed and gender activists do with their articles of faith and euphemisms. Euphemisms are dangerous. Remember, it's not top or chest surgery. It's an amputation of a girl's healthy breasts. The gender medical establishment wants you to get used to the idea and to be blind to the evil. All, at all costs, do not allow it. Thank you for tuning in to the Healing Lives with Corey Gilbert podcast. It has been an honor to serve. If you are struggling, have questions, or in need, Dr. Gilbert offers a free consultation for new clients. Check us out at healinglives.com to book a call. If this has been helpful to you, please share it, leave a review, and help us get the word out so that we can see lives changed, marriages transformed, and more.
more people come into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. The Healing Life Center offers online courses, programs, books, intensives, and other services to help you live biblically and well. Discover more resources on YouTube and in Dr. Gilbert's Healing Marriage Facebook group, The Healing Marriage.